It's so great to be with you in the house, and if you're online, both near and far, it's great to have you as well as a part of our service of worship this morning. Now, really, church is just about people coming together to make much about Jesus. We came together and made much about Jesus in song. We came together and made much about Jesus in prayer and honoring missions. And now we come together and make much about Jesus through the preaching and the hearing of his word. So I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, as we think about what it meant for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem on this Sunday that we call Palm Sunday. So Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. And tie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. When the cry, medic, ran out across the battlefield, he never considered his own safety. He rushed to those gravely injured through the sound of bullets coming in his direction and the sound of mortars hitting the ground. Several times, working on a wounded soldier, he could, so close he could hear the Japanese voices from the front lines. And after the company had secured the top of the cliff, the enemy counterattacked and pushed them away. And the commander gave the charge to retreat, leaving two-thirds of the wounded on top of that hill. One man disobeyed that order, and he continued to move into the fire, pulling out and rescuing and helping those that were injured. That day, May 5th, 1945, that man rescued 75 soldiers through his bravery for that. The name of that man was Desmond Doss, a man who refused to carry a weapon and refused to take a life of another person, but was willing to rescue and potentially sacrifice his own life for the sake of another. And for what he did, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, and when President Truman awarded it to him, he said, I consider this a greater honor than being the president." of the United States. 
The story of Desmond's life is told beautifully in the 2016 movie, Hacksaw Ridge. Now, you may be asking the question, why, Mark, are you talking about this on Palm Sunday? Why would I share a story about this? Well, we honor our first responders, our medics, our firefighters, our police officers, our military, those people who move into the direction of danger as opposed to moving away from it. And what they do is a great and an honorable thing. And as you think about this picture of these honorable professions, I'd like for you to think about Jesus as the first great responder. You see, on the road to Jerusalem, he moved to the place of greatest pain, greatest danger, and greatest sacrifice. And he did it not to just save physically, but to save each of us spiritually from our sins and to become our Savior. And so as you think about what happened on that Sunday over 2,000 years ago, as he rode a young donkey, think about the Son of God moving to the pace of greatest personal sacrifice to save you and to save me by dying on a cross. That's really what Palm Sunday is all about. And the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem is the start of the last week of his life. These are the last seven days that he will be on this earth and going to the cross. And it's interesting that all four Gospels actually record this story because the Gospel writers, their goal is to help us understand who Jesus is and what he did and why he came. And when all four of these are listing this story, it shows us that it's very, very important What's also fascinating with the last week of Jesus' life and death to the resurrection is the amount of time all the gospel writers give towards it. Matthew devotes actually one-fourth of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life. Mark, one-third of his gospel. Luke, one-fifth of his gospel. And the gospel of John, half of the gospel is focused on the last week of the life of Jesus. And so what the the gospel writers are telling us that what you see here is really, really, really important. Out of 89 chapters in the gospels, 29 and a half recount this last week. Very important. So this Sunday we call Palm Sunday. I've never quite liked that term. It's so nondescriptive. I wish instead that we could call it Triumphal Entry Sunday. The, the, the day the king came, the king of kings and the Lord of lords walked salvation's road for you and for me. He deliberately moved to the greatest point of pain to rescue you and to rescue me. And as we look at our passage, let's consider what salvation's road was for Jesus and what it is for us. First, salvation's road is the way of obedience. What put Jesus on salvation's road from Jericho to Jerusalem was his perfect submission to the will of God the Father. See, Jesus walked the way of perfect obedience, and he illustrates that even by the words that he spoke in John 5.34. He says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He told his disciples he must suffer and die And everything he did was in accordance of the ancient prophecy in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't some Forrest Gump-like figure caught up in events and just sort of stumbling along. 
He was moving in accordance with the plan that God had established before the foundation of the world. He moved with forward, with perfect foreknowledge of the plan of God for his life. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus actually pulls his disciples aside and for the third time in Mark 10 says these words, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He knew all of the details of the last week of his life. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that Peter would deny him after the rooster crowed three times. He knew that he would be scourged, humiliated, tortured, and executed. He knew all of these things. He was Lord over history. And fully knowing the cost, Jesus obediently went to the cross. And think about his attention to detail in the first three verses of of Matthew 21, where he instructs his apostles, his disciples, to go into the village and get a donkey and the, the, the child, the baby of a donkey. And if anybody asks, the owners ask, why are you doing this? Just say the Lord has need of it. And in Luke, it says, those who sent, were sent ahead found out exactly as the Lord had told them. The one who knew the numbers of hairs of our head and knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, the one who knows the thoughts of men, even before they're spoken, knew everything that was about to happen. And not only is Jesus attentive to all of these small, fine details, he also realizes that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of old that a king would enter triumphantly and has the right to requisition whatever he wishes. And in reading these passages in Zechariah, he's actually fulfilling a prophecy spoken 500 years before in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not even a single second in Jesus' earthly life was he unclear about his purpose and his calling and his mission. Jesus is the great first responder who gave his life for you and gave his life for me. Now think about what it would feel like to move forward to a direction where you know exactly what the cost and the pain would be. To know that as you move forward in God's divine plan, you would experience the worst the world and the devil could hurl at you. What would motivate somebody and not scare them away? What would keep Jesus from doing the thing that he intended to do? In a word, it's it's love. Love for his Father and love for each one of you. As Jesus walked salvation's road to the cross inside Jerusalem to die... He had you on his mind. He did it for you. He was going to offer his life so that you might find eternal life, that you might have a home in heaven, that you might have your sins forgiven, that you would be adopted by a father in heaven whom you could now call Abba. You are not worthless. You are of such value and worth 
that the Son of God himself took all of this pain for you and for your sake. I love the old hymn by Isaac Watts that says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Out of perfect, unconditional love, Jesus, the first great responder, gave his life for you. And now what he wants you to do is to give your life to him in loving and loyal service. So salvation's road is the way of obedience. And secondly, salvation's road is the way of rejection. Any first responder runs to the danger zone not knowing whether or not they're going to make it out. Jesus knew what it would cost him, great suffering and humiliation. And Jesus knew that when he departed Jericho, he wasn't moving to a kingdom. He was moving to a crucifixion. As God greenlighted the last phase of his life, he went on the road to salvation to accomplish his mission. And Jesus actually moves in a way to draw attention to himself. In the military, there's an operational term called a movement to contact or a meeting engagement. It's when a unit moves forward, finding the location of the enemy by moving in their direction. And really, that's what Jesus was doing when he went up the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Shortly before the road to Jerusalem, Jesus was very intentional not to draw any attention to himself. When you read of him healing someone or casting out demons, he often says, don't tell anyone, but at the very least, just tell them the good things that God has done for you. He was always deflecting attention from himself. And additionally, times when a mob wanted to elevate him or wanted to kill him, he would slip away because his time had not yet come. In the previous chapter, though, we see a transition from Jesus moving from quiet to open. Two blind men in Jericho cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, and Jesus heals them. And he does this as the Passover pilgrims are surging into the city for the week of Passover, maybe hundreds of thousands that are there. And in the Gospel of John, the week or so prior, Jesus performs his greatest miracle of all, raising Lazarus from the dead. And the interest and the the attention to Jesus kept growing and growing so much so that finally the religious leaders said it's time for us to find a way to take him out and kill him. By entering Jerusalem on a young donkey with crowds before him and behind him and their cloaks on the ground, crying, Hosanna to the son of David, he was forcing the hand of the religious leaders to take his life. The apostle Peter says this in a really fascinating way in the book of Acts as he preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now consider that statement. God had a foreordained plan, and he was using the wickedness, the greed, the jealousy, the envy of the religious leaders to accomplish his plan of redemption. Nothing will stop what God wants to do. And Jesus was crossed. He was crucified before he was crowned. And another amazing piece of this story is the timing of when Jesus came. We said it was the Holy Week of Passover, 
where they celebrated their delivery out of Egypt. And what Passover is really focusing on the tenth and final plague of the people of Israel as they moved out of Egypt. And God told Moses that an angel of death would pass over Egypt to take all of the firstborn in Egypt. But those who took the blood of a lamb and put it on their doorpost, the angel would pass over those houses, preserving the lives of these firstborn. And annually, Passover was celebrated in Jerusalem when the heads of households would bring in the lamb and have him sacrificed to be a meal for Passover. And in perfect obedience, Jesus moving to the Father's timeline would actually be being crucified on the cross at the very same time the priests were sacrificing the Passover lamb. You see, when John the Baptist first saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here he is. God's lamb riding on a baby donkey into the jaws of the religious leaders to be killed by men so that he would be a sacrificial sin offering for you and for me, offering redemption to us. It's almost crazy to hear the shouts of Hosanna as Jesus came in, and a week later, there are the shouts of crucify him. But Jesus had, uh, Jesus, God used rejection to accomplish redemption. You see, Jesus gave the people two choices. You can crown me or you can kill me. You can accept me or reject me. You only have two choices. And really, when it comes to us, we only have two options as well. We accept Jesus and what he has done for us, or we reject Jesus. To say, maybe I'm going to just keep all my options open. Maybe I've got a wait-and-see mindset. You see, to not decide is really to reject. And God calls each person to put their personal trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody once said that hell really is just an extension of the choices people make in this life. All their life they say, God, I'll have nothing to do with you. And at death, God says, very well, you may have your wish. You will have nothing to do with me for all of eternity. Now imagine if you were one of those soldiers on the battlefield on May 5th, 1945, wounded and unable to get yourself out, and a medic comes. And you look up and you say, no thanks, I'm good. It doesn't make a lot of sense to turn away an offer for someone to save your life. Well, accept the offer of Jesus to save you. As excruciatingly painful as Jesus' mission was, he also knew that rejection would lead to rescue. Salvation's road is the way of rescue. Ultimately, Jesus coming into the world was a rescue mission, but what an odd way. A coming king riding on a donkey so small that the, the mother donkey had to come along. He's probably got his legs hiked up. It's almost an untriumphal entry as you think about it. And Jesus coming shows us that he is a counterintuitive king. You see, Israel was occupied territory. The Romans governed with an iron fist and an eagle eye. And to have them in the land of Jerusalem and Israel was, in a sense, defiling the land for the Jewish people. They wanted them away. And they longed for a person to come and to take back their land and restore it back to the days of 
Kings David and King Solomon. But Jesus came to accomplish something different. He came in humility, as he rode in on a young donkey, symbolizing coming in peace, not in war. He did not demand a crown. He didn't make the Roman barracks collapse. He didn't make Pilate and Herod bow before him. He didn't raise an army and overthrow the government. There were no columns of soldiers in armor following Jesus into Jerusalem. And instead of waving swords, they waved palm branches. Even when Jesus was before Pilate, he said he found no grounds to charge Jesus. And so the question is, what kind of king do we want? And often we want a king for our personal benefit. One emperor during the time of Rome said, if we just give the people bread and circuses, they'll be good. This is not the kind of king that we have. He wants to be king of our lives. We want a king sometimes to give us peace, prosperity, victory over our enemies, and triumph over our trials. But that's not the kind of kingly benefits that Jesus came to give. Tim Keller writes it this way. He is coming not to rule, but to save. But not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. I'm going to triumph through weakness, and my followers can only connect by repenting and acknowledging their need. Salvation through weakness by giving up and dying on a cross. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the people were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now that word Hosanna is not like hallelujah. It's actually a word that was transcribed from the Greek. And from the Greek, it came from the Hebrew. And it's a word that means Hoshiana, which literally means save, please. It is a cry to God for help. And it's a hope-filled cry because it says, Hosanna to the Son of David. And you only have it in one place in the Scriptures, and that's Psalm 118, verse 25 through 26. And so as the people were crying this out, they were saying, Save us, please, Messiah. Save us now, help us now, rescue us and deliver us. It's almost like a severely wounded soldier on the battlefield crying, medic, medic, and seeing the medic come to save their life. So to receive God's rescue, we must cry out ourselves, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us now. I had a strange experience once when I was in college walking in a shopping mall. And as I was walking, I saw someone vectoring to me in this direction. And I did what most introverts do. I started walking faster to try to get out of his vector, but he increased. And he literally got in front of me and jumped in front of me and said, Are you saved? And I wasn't a Christian at the time, so I was kind of freaked out a little bit by this very aggressive evangelist. But you know, a great question to ask him is, saved from what? Yeah, what am I saved from? So many times we want our personal Jesus, like the Johnny Cash song goes. We want somebody to make us healthy, wealthy, wise. We want a personal steward to give us all of our needs. We want my kid as an honor student on the back of our bumpers. We want the right spouse. We see God as a celestial vending machine an Amazon account unlimited to drop whatever we want in the cart 
and give us what we need. But when we think about Jesus as Savior, we realize that King Jesus does not want to do a makeover of your life. He wants to do a takeover of your life. Now think about if you got married and and uh, a few weeks afterwards, you looked in the eyes of your beloved and maybe over a nice candlelight meal, you said, darling, I am, I am 75% into this relationship. You might experience your first night on the couch. Now think about that. If we, the way we live our lives, say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm, I'm in 75%. He wants it all. He wants all of our lives fully committed to him. You know, political campaigns are fascinating to watch. Yes, they get a little bit tiring and wearisome sometimes. But listen very carefully what the people who are lying behind a candidate are often saying. It almost sounds like, save us. Save us now. Deliver us from our hard and unhappy lives. And what is the response of whoever that politician is? I will save you. But it's not the kind of salvation that Jesus offers us. You see, the cross comes before the crown. Robert Rayburn, the pastor emeritus of Faith Presbyterian Church, says, we are the only people in the world who worship a God with wounds. You see, the last thing they expected was Jesus to die. And Jesus was revealing himself as the lowly suffering king. And this is not the end of the story. You see, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, but one day he's going to change mounts. One day he is going to come in a white horse wielding a sword as a returning, conquering king. And what's amazing about this passage of uh, Zechariah 9 is the following verse after verse 9. It says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Because he saved us, we don't need to fear the day he comes back on a horse. Because he is Savior and he is Lord, he is our hope and our salvation. And we can rejoice and know that when he comes to execute judgment upon the nations, he is no longer a meek and tender Savior. He is great and terrifying. The events of the day... And the previous days caused quite a stir as the city was filled with its hundreds of thousands of Passover pilgrims. Many were witnessing this man riding in on a young donkey to the cheers of Hosanna, the waving of pole branches. And the most basic question comes up from our text as they see this happening. Who? Who is this? Who is this? And it's sad because the answer they give, this was a prophet from northern Israel. They did not see Jesus for who he truly was. And you see, it's the same question that you and I need to ask. Who is this? And the answer to that question is that this is the Son of God. The second member of the Trinity, eternally preexistent from God the Father, who came and deployed down from heaven to take on human skin, to live a perfect life that would end on a death mission on the cross, to die, to rise again, to ascend into heaven, to be our hope and our salvation. That is the answer to the who is this 
that we all need to have. And this truth demands a response. If we believe this, there are three things that God calls and invites us to do. The first one is that I will trust King Jesus. I will trust him. Luis Palau was a famous evangelist who just died this month. He served as Billy Graham's translator when he spoke in Spanish language areas and traveled to over 70 different countries preaching the gospel. And he says this about trusting Jesus in a beautiful way. He says, you don't have to have a jaw-dropping story of how you received Jesus. It must be yours, the evangelist said. Some have the light falling from heaven, the Damascus Road experience that takes them from the chief of sinners into the arms of Jesus. Some of us are kids just starting to learn what sin means. And the light from heaven looks like a shaky flashlight beam on the page of a Bible as chilly rain falls around. What is important in our conversion is the reality of it. And Paul says in Romans, in a very clear, powerful way, in 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart, you will be saved. For out of the heart one believes and is justified, and out of the mouth one confesses and is saved. Secondly, I will obey King Jesus. Karen Walters shared a story and gave me her permission to share it with you. When Bill was in a coma, severely ill in a hospital in Seattle, she was traveling back and forth every day to visit and spend the days with him. And one day, just to kind of deal with the stress and the strain, she went to a masseuse and she was talking to the masseuse. You know, when I drive, I pray to Jesus, who is my co-pilot. And the masseuse said, honey, you better get out of that seat and allow Jesus to take the main seat of the aircraft. And she said that was a transition point in her life where God was no longer her co-pilot. God was the flight lead controlling the aircraft, and she was in the other seat. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the great theologian and pastor in Germany during World War II, during the rise of Adolf Hitler, who actually participated in an attempt to take Hitler's life and died a martyr's death, put obedience powerfully in this way. He says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And lastly, I will worship King Jesus. The wondrous love that God has extended to us through his wondrous work, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised second coming should fuel the furnace of our hearts to worship and praise Jesus in powerful ways. And I love how the old hymn, O Worship the King, captures our right response to love God's love and grace in a powerful way. O worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his wonderful love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor, and girded with praise. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. 
our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. You alone are the matchless king. To you alone be all majesty. Your glories and wonders, what tongue can recite? So as you think about this Palm Sunday, I'd like you to just have this picture of this image in your mind. And think about this as Jesus charging to the place of greatest danger, greatest pain, greatest sacrifice to the cross. And as he was charging to that place, he was charging to where you were down and couldn't get back up. And by grace through faith, he becomes your savior and you trust in him. He is the first great responder who gave his life for you and offers saving salvation for you. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that you had a plan for all eternity. And that plan was to deploy your son to planet Earth, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And and Jesus, we just marvel that you knew every step of the way and you did not veer off course. Your great love for the Father and your great love for us brought you to a cross and brought you to hands that pounded them into the wood. And you did this to be our Savior, the great first responder who saves our souls. So give us grace, God, to worship you in the manner that you are worthy each and every day that you keep us on this planet. We ask these things in Jesus' name.